When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Bleacher Connection with Ken and Trevor, a part of the Unhinged Sports Network. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or topics you'd like to hear us cover, you can reach us on our social media pages, Twitter, at TheBleacherCon1, and at TheBleacherCon2, and our Facebook page, The Bleacher Connection with Ken and Trevor. On this week's episode, we're going to do our normal That's Offside, where we look at a few topics that caught our ire this week, and we have a little roundtable discussion on it. Also, we had the the release of some of the MLB Hall of Fame ballots of who's potentially on the list and uh, who's kind of a holdover that's still on the list. And Ken and I are going to make our choices of who we think should enter the uh, MLB Hall of Fame. Um, I do believe some of our choices uh, you may question, but that we shall see. And also, in honor of what should have been Grey Cup week in the Canadian Football League, Ken and I are going to look back on some of our favorite moments from the CFL. And, and uh, we're also going to look at the potential return to play schedule that was released this week. Kind of a shining, uh, a bit of hope for some of us hardcore CFL fans who unfortunately lost our entire 2020 season to COVID. So uh, kind of exciting news for us. And we're just going to kind of chat all things CFL, have some fun with this. But as always, to uh, start off with, we're going to go with that soft side and Ken the very first thing that kind of caught my eye was and actually you sent me this in a message was the NHL kind of released their top 10 goalie of who the fans thought the best goalies in the NHL were and as with uh, you uh, this list took me back a little bit and there's definitely some uh, additions on this list that shouldn't be there and to me some major subtractions so Ken I'm gonna let you kind of take off what did you think of the top 10 goalie list yeah I wasn't a big fan of it I mean there's definitely I agree with the majority of the list I would say that and just to kind of go at 10 they have Frederick Anderson 9 Marc-Andre Fleury Eight, Jordan Bennington, John Gibson at seven, Anton Gudobin at six, Tuka Rask at five, Carter Hart at four, Carey Price at three, Connor Hellebuck at two, and I think we probably both agree on this, Andre Vasilevsky at one. Now, my problem with this list starts at number seven. I don't agree that John Gibson should be on this list. You know, not, and it's not just John Gibson, but the Mighty Ducks are not a team that are to be reckoned with. And well, the Mighty Ducks used to be the Anaheim Ducks, not so much. Correct. Yeah, that uh, may, they might want to add the Mighty back in there just to see if it can get any kind of traction back on the winning side. But I don't think John Gibson should be on this list. Frederick Anderson, I think, is a bit of a reach at 10. Marc-Andre Fleury is a goaltender that lost his starting job this past season. You know, they had to bring in Robin Leonard to hold down the fort. Bennington on the list at 8, they put him at 10. I mean, he, he had he's put together 
barely a little over one season worth of games. So to say he's a top 10 goaltender, I don't agree with that. A lot of the other lists, maybe moving some pieces around in different spots, you know, Hellebuck absolutely should be too. Price has been a solid goaltender for a long time. Carter Hart's up and coming. A little high at four, maybe. Tuka Rask. But the one big surprise here that I thought was a huge omission and seeing him in Vancouver and you're going to see him in Calgary now is Jacob Markstrom. I, I really found it with all the fanfare and the hype going into free agency of everyone's talking he's one of the top goaltenders in the league. He doesn't even crack the NHL Network's top 10. To me, I think that is a huge miss. And even when you got Anton Gudovin, who was Bishop's backup and got thrust into the starting position because Bishop was hurt. I think that's a huge miss not having Markstrom on this list. Yeah, I got to I got to somewhat agree with you on most of this list. Like in in quick looking at it, three of the guys on this list weren't even the starter for their team in the in the most re- recent return to play Stanley Cup playoffs. Like one of them didn't even Hudobin, get to play or didn't get to play. Like Anton Hudobin only got to play because Ben Bishop was hurt. So he shouldn't be on this list. Jordan Bennington lost his starting job because he was so terrible in the playoffs. And Marc-Andre Fleury lost his starting job because he was so inconsistent in the Stanley Cup playoffs. And I'm with you. Freddie Anderson is maybe a stretch. I guess his regular season numbers are absolutely phenomenal. But the playoffs are a different time. And to me, if you're going to have Anton Hudobin on this list, for his playoff performances, because that's clearly why he's on there. Well, then Freddie Anderson should not be on the list or vice on. versa. Like Dem- Demko should have made the list then for his three games. Right. If you're only going to look at it, such a small sample size. And Tuka Rask to me at number five, he should be at number two. He's, he's been one of the most stellar goalies in the league for a long time. Connor Hollebuck was absolutely phenomenal. Carey Price had a tough year, but turned it around. But again, Carter Hart, we, he played half a season. So how can you even have him on this list? There's, I don't know. It caught my eye when I saw it. And again, the whole Markstrom thing. And I'm not just giving a home bias because of the Calgary Flames. He legitimately is one of the best goalies in the NHL. He's not even on here. So I got to agree with you for the most part in this, Ken. I thought it was, it, it was out to lunch. Yeah, so I, mean, I think for the most part, we're both in agreement that this is a top 10 that falls fairly, fairly offside in our in our view. So moving on to the next topic we're kind of going to talk about here. It came out last week that James Harden turned down a, what essentially would have been a $51.5 million a year contract, two years at $103 million with the Houston Rockets. What's your take on that? This one is interesting because it kind of plays both sides of the fence of A, wanting to get paid, and B, wanting to play on a winner. So I don't know where I fall on this one, to be honest. I'm shocked that a a, a professional athlete would turn down $51 million a year. So in that sense, he's way offside because – what are you doing? Like, literally, you're a hundred million dollars. You just said no to. But on the other hand, I guess wanting to win, sure. But you're then going to force yourself, force a trade out of the cities. And as I discussed last week, I think that's incredibly offside. Where you you try to force yourself out of a out of a team to be on a contender. So 
you know, I guess as I'm talking through this, I find the whole James Harden thing incredibly offside because he turned down the money and he's also trying to force his way out of Houston. So there we go. There's my opinion. It's incredibly offside. Yeah, it, it is a tough one. I do agree. The, the the forcing a trade is something that I don't agree with. I I don't find him turning it down to be offside because he is choosing wanting to win over just getting paid. So I don't find that offside. I think that's, he's making a choice. He's not signing up for a longer term in Houston. If he doesn't think they're going to win and it doesn't sound like they're really wanting to put a winner together right now. So I don't find that part offside. I do think the trying to force a trade and saying, I want out. And in this one, this is where I, I, I will go against what I said for Russell Westbrook last week because Westbrook didn't sign his big long-term deal with Houston. He signed it with Oklahoma, then he got dealt. And he was on a winner in Oklahoma. At the time, they were winning, they were doing good, and then he got moved. This is where Harden signed. He left Oklahoma. He's, he had signed a, this big deal with Houston. When it comes to the term of money, he's going to get paid. We're, whenever his contract and wherever his contract ends, whether it's Houston or somewhere else, he's going to get paid. That could be... Will. It could be north of $51.5 million as well, too. So I think for forcing the trade, I'll say offside. But for choosing winning over money, I don't have issue with that. I would have to imagine, though, his NFL brethren has a bit of uh, issue with him turning down that contract. Because as we see in every sport, the, big, the, the higher the contracts, the more everybody's contracts are. So I'm pretty sure some of his uh, NBA uh, Players Association members aren't overly enthused that he turned down this contract. We saw that how many years ago with Korea and Solani when they were signing lower dollar deals to play together, whether that was in Anaheim or Colorado, when they were moving around together, signing essentially the same deals, they were taking less money. And that did piss off some of the other NHL players because those guys should have been getting the big dollar deals and anyone comparable to them now is going to end up having to take a look at taking a pay cut because yeah. well, if people are like, well, you're just like Korea and Slaney, well, they're going to be like, great. Now I'm getting less money. So yeah, yeah don't get it's going to be a problem. Don't get me wrong. I don't necessarily feel bad for a guy who's turned down $51 million and his NBA uh, fellow players may only have to take a $47 million contract as opposed to 50. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't feel bad for these guys. Yeah. yeah but it's, I'm, it's I'm still sure quite some of his fellow NBA players are, are not overly happy with him turning down that deal. Yeah. So the next thing that uh, caught both of our eyes, and it's actually going to kind of lead into our MLB Hall of Fame ballot talk, I'm assuming, is Robinson Cano getting busted for the second time using performance-enhancing drugs and receiving a 162-game ban. Ken, how do you feel about Robbie Cano? Yeah, the fact that this is the second time that it's happened, he's already served an 80-game suspension when he was with the Mariners for, for PEDs, is disappointing because it tarnishes one test, one positive test would tarnish a career. Right. But I think because Robinson Cano for such a long time was such a 
great player that now you question his whole career. Was he on steroids and taking stuff? And is that why he was so good? Or is this a guy at the end of his career trying to prolong his playing days? Regardless of whatever the reason is, it's completely offside. I think uh, steroids, I just, it's tough. The, The Major League Baseball has a history of it. And as you said, we will definitely be talking a little bit about that in the Hall of Fame part. But it's just disappointing, the whole thing completely offside sets such such a bad example to me i'm actually questioning whether he got caught on purpose he's gotten all the money he's ever gonna need he's got championships he's won he's got the numbers is this a guy potentially just not wanting to play in 2021 due to covid i don't know maybe it is it seems to me highly suspect that a guy gets caught for a second time when you know full well you're getting tested regularly. So this is your own stupidity. And at no point has he ever really come out and issued the obligatory, oh, it was an accident. Oh, I didn't mean to. I can't believe I got caught. He never did that. So to me, this kind of screams, did he do it on purpose? He doesn't need the money. Why not just retire? Well, if you get a one-game ban, he's still got two more years left on his contract. So he's forfeiting maybe one of those years to still get two more, and maybe by then things will be back to normal. So it just seems incredibly odd to me that he really hasn't come out and said anything and incredibly convenient with what's going on in the world right now. No, I'm not by any means saying he did, but... I think that possibility is there, and for that reason, I think it's offside. Yeah, I, I'm just the whole cheating to win to get or any kind of advantage. Yeah, for me, that's why it's it's offside by a lot. Uh, last one we're going to cover off, and that's offside. Is we touched ba- touched on it last week with the NBA starting what it was going to do to the NHL's potential start date. And over the last week here, we've heard that the NHL is trying to rush some of the CBA talks and concessions with the players to get it going earlier. What's your take on that, Trev? I find it incredibly frustrating that just four months ago, the NHL and the NHLPA, and it might have been a little bit longer now, came to an agreement on a new collective bargaining agreement, essentially allowing them to return to play. And... I traditionally have always been on the side of the owners when it comes to the CBA talks because they're the ones fronting all the capital and it's literally up to them to make the the league run. But in this case, I don't agree with them. I'm actually on the player's side on this because the NHL is literally trying to claw back even more money from their players. And I get the revenues are going to be down and I get that there's not going to be fans in the stands. But you knew that four months ago when you signed the new collective bargaining agreement. And now you're trying to get something like an 18% rollback on the salaries even more than what's on top now. Or pushing the escrow percentage higher, which is even worse for the players because that's essentially money lost. At least the rollback is a deferral. The escrow is literally money out of their pocket. And so I think in both ways... 
the NHL owners are trying to have their cake and eat it too. And I get that there's financial hardships, but you're going to have to deal with it. How many other businesses in the world right now are having to deal with financial hardships? So make it work, find a way to make it work and don't take it out on your employees. Yeah, I think it's definitely, it's a tough one. Because, as you said, they've already done a lot to come to an agreement previously. The unfortunate thing with the whole pandemic situation is it's a it's a rolling, ever-evolving situation. And what worked four months ago may not work today. What worked a week ago may not work today. So it is, it's tough. It's a, I want to say rushing it is where I think that is the offside of trying to rush to come to an agreement to get playing because again you're going to be having people making rash decisions that aren't the best i just think the whole thing shouldn't be rushed they need to take their time and work on something that's going to work for both players and owners because you're right the owners are the ones that put up the capital the players are the ones putting in all the work to sell the jerseys because you know everyone wants to wear what the players are wearing right so it's a tough one you got to find the middle ground and it's no one wants to get there i think because everyone thinks they're giving up more than the next than the other side especially in business one of the things i'm really worried about is are the nhl owners going to use this and strong arm the players and say okay well if you don't agree to it then we're not going to play and i'm really worried that they might because history says when it comes to labor negotiations, those typically aren't handled well in the NHL. And I'm yeah. worried the NHL is going to strong arm the players into forcing them to accept their terms or else they're just not going to play. And that's the worst case scenario. Yeah. But we've seen it before, so I would not be surprised. And what seemed like the relationship had been repaired a little bit. I'm worried is going to be torn right apart over this. And, and that is incredibly dangerous. Yeah, it's definitely going to be a, an interesting time to, until we get some kind of resolve as to what's going to happen. So interesting times coming forward with the NHL and what their plans actually are going to come out to be. So yeah, the whole, whole thing's just offside, however, however you look at it. So that's our, that's offside for the week. Let us know what you think. Uh, Twitter, at the BleacherCon1, at the BleacherCon2, or on Facebook, the Bleacher Connection with Ken and Trevor. Okay, moving on to our next topic. And uh, I think our last That's Offside is kind of leading into this quite well with the uh, talk on Robinson Cano. And that's the release of the 2021 MLB Hall of Fame ballots. Um, Ken, you sent this to me earlier this week to uh, peruse and... Let's say some of the initial names I saw on the list, I was pretty underwhelmed at uh, some of the people who are you know, up for consideration for the Hall of Fame ballot, uh, most notably the newcomers. And one way I always like to kind of determine whether I think somebody deserves in the Hall of Fame or not is when you say their name, do you automatically say Barry Zito, Hall of Famer? Like, does it, does it flow? And to yeah. me, I look at some of the names that are on this list. Barry Zito, Aramis Ramirez, Nick Swisher, Michael Kadire, Dan Heron. I'm sorry. AJ Burnett. Uh, AJ Burnett. I'm sorry. 
none of these guys screams AJ Burnett Hall of Famer to me. So in the initial, I guess you could almost call it the smell test, the newcomers on this list aren't up to par. No, and and I think we chose five each. As a hall, if you're picking in the Hall of Fame committee, you got to pick ten or can pick up to ten. Now, if these, uh, yeah, with the newcomers and some of the re- returnees for me, like I struggled to pick five. I was looking at this list, like Latroy Hawkins is on here, Shane Victorino, uh, Tory Hunter, like you know, Tory's a different story. Like, he's just one of the newcomers, but he does come across as a guy with a little bit of you know pedigree that could be Hall of Fame worthy. But you look at the returnees, and this is where I struggle with it too. You got Kurt Schilling, Billy Wagner, Andrew Jones, Manny Ramirez, Todd Helton, Roger Clemens is still on the ballot. Barry Bonds, Jeff Kent, Gary Sheffield, Sammy Sosa, Scott Rowland, Omar Vizquel, Andy Pettit, Bobby Abreu. There's some names on there with some not good history. This is where I found it so difficult to pick just five guys that I thought five guys that I thought actually deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. So, I don't know, where would you like to start with your list, Trevor? Well, is it potentially conceivable that 2021 is the first year where they don't induct anybody into the Hall of Fame? You know, let's just throw that disclaimer out there because there's there's, um, controversy involved in a lot of these picks. And you know what? I'm going to flat out say it right now. I'm picking the guys with controversy. I, the steroid era in Major League Baseball cannot be hidden. It it was literally a time that happened in baseball. And I hate to say this, it may have saved baseball. So to completely turn your blind eye to that whole era, I think is reckless. And this goes against everything that I've ever said. But I'm kind of at this point where you know what, let's just have a wing of the Hall of Fame dedicated to these people. Maybe you can put a big asterisk above the door before you walk into that room. Well, I think instead of a logo, they're the team logo on a hat, they just get an asterisk or a, yeah, or a, exactly. a syringe but, or something. But you, you can't turn a blind eye to the fact that that era existed in baseball. And I think you need to recognize it in, a, in such a manner. So first on my list of who I think should be going into the Hall of Fame in 2021 Barry Bonds. He is the home run king, whether we like it or not. He has the single season home run record, I believe at 73 home runs in one season. He has the all-time home run record at 762. The guy had 2,000 RBIs in his career. The guy hit to a 300 average in his career. And I know it's elevated, But even before the steroid era, he was still averaging, you know, 30, 20, 30, 40 home runs a season. Because we don't know exactly when it started. So he was, even before the steroid era, a superstar in the league. He became the ultra superstar after. But I, I don't think you can deny the fact that even beforehand, he was a superstar in the league. So for that reason, Barry Bonds is my first pick to go into the 2021 Hall of Fame. Yeah, 
I struggle with the steroid era as well because Major League Baseball let it happen. They didn't punish them at the time. They didn't do anything then, but now they're being held accountable. And I, I, uh, I do and I don't struggle with that because you didn't punish it for it then. You allowed it to happen, but also it happened. And your numbers are inflated to Hall of Fame standards because you cheated, right? But at the time, that, were they cheating? They were all being tested. They were all if if they if it wasn't cheating back then, why was it so hidden? Why were guys like Conseco and McGuire going and doing it in the shadows? Yeah, not quite the shadows if you look at Conseco's book, but you know. Why, why weren't they just doing it in their locker stall, right? Yeah. Why wasn't it administered by the teams? Why wasn't every single player in the in the bigs and in the minors juicing then, right? They were, but it was just hidden. They still had people failing tests. They were just choosing who and when to test them. Uh, so I still struggle with that. My list does not, like, uh, I did not go with some of the guys with controversy, I think. My first pick was Andy Pettit. I think he was a... Uh, he was a dominant pitcher in his time, and I think he has the the numbers and the the championships that should put him in the Hall of the Hall of Fame. But wasn't um, there doubt around, around whether he used steroids? Yeah, there could have. Yeah, I think it's tough with this whole thing. Whether they were, you know, pitchers, I think were the harder ones because they weren't hitting the ball five hundred feet, but they were still. It's a tough list. But yeah, Pettit may have had it, but it wasn't as much as some of the other guys. So I think uh, he was one. It's a tough list. Just to, we talked about to pick five was extremely difficult. And I think you're, it'd be hard to not hit someone with at least a hint of did they use or not. But I think he wasn't one that really was pushed as a big time user. Yeah, but that's that's my first first pick. Well, number two on my list, and I guess. If I'm going to pick one slugger from the era who was a known user, I guess I might as well pick the other, one of the other famous sluggers from the era, and that's got to be Sammy Sosa. Again, in 1998, he helped uh, reimagine the baseball world with his you know, famous home run chase of Roger Maris with Mark McGuire. He ended the season with 66 home runs. <clears throat> in the subsequent season, he had 63 home runs and then 50, 64 Again, we all know why, but the numbers are there. And he had almost 1,700 RBIs in his career. He had over 600 home runs. He was just, he had personality too. And that was another reason why I kind of liked him was he, he was just a little bit different. He had the funky batting stance as well. And it just, it, he, he looked awkward doing what he was doing, but he did it well. And, you know, if if Barry Bonds is on this list and if Mark McGuire, I guess, should be, then Sammy Sosa has to be there, too. Yeah, I remember I was a little too young to remember seeing him, but Sammy Sosa played some minor ball in Vancouver. And uh, I remember my dad telling me that Sammy did not look that size when he was in Vancouver. He was a scrawny, lanky kid coming up in the minors who developed into a monster at the plate 
a uh, little bit later on in his career. Developed. Later. I gotta, I gotta second that. I actually did go to a couple games, uh, Calgary Cannons games, where Sammy Sosa was involved in the Pacific Coast League, and you know, at the time, I didn't think anything of it, but looking back on it, it's kind of like, wow, I actually got to see Sammy Sosa play. Yeah, I'm sure if we pulled out some old uh, Vancouver Canadian and Calgary Cannons AAA rosters, we'd both be fairly surprised to say, oh, man, I got to see that guy play live. Yeah, Edgar uh, Martinez, probably the yeah. most famous. Yeah, My uh, my second pick was is is one of the newcomers. Oh, wow. uh, and that's, well, that's uh, Tori, uh, Tori Hunter. I will give him the credit. He was a hell of an outfielder. He was a steady player throughout his whole career. Um, just played hard. Yeah, this, it's a tough list. It's a tough list. But Torrey Hunter, uh, he stuck out from some of the other names on the list in, in in coming in, especially in the newcomers. Again, I struggled with picking anyone from the that has controversy in the returnees. Number three on my list is, well, if I'm going to pick the biggest juicing sluggers of the era, I might as well pick the biggest juicing pitcher of the era. And I would have to believe that that was Roger Clemens. Let's face it, his numbers are some of the best in the history of baseball. Uh, 354 career wins. Uh, He averaged almost 230 strikeouts per season. I think he had 4,700 in his career, give or take. Uh, He averaged 17 wins a season. He had multiple Cy Young awards. I think one, one, two, three, four of them, I believe. He was the dominant pitcher of the era. And when he left the Red Sox to join the Toronto Blue Jays for a shorter period of time as it was, man, was I thankful. Because was (laughs) I ever tired of watching that guy mow down Blue Jays left, right, and center. So... You know, his his numbers, I guess, are right there as the all-time best. And uh, he he deserves to be in the uh, steroid wing of the Hall of Fame. Yeah, now, looking at the list of newcomers and returnees, um, you got Mark Burley, A.J. Burnett, Roger Clemens, and did not, didn't Latroy Hawkins have a short, short Blue Jay stint as well late at the, near the end of his career? Yeah, I believe he did. Yeah, so that makes four... Four former Blue Jays on this list. None of them with the numbers that really came to be put them on this list as Blue Jays. Um, yeah, my next is actually one of those four, Mark Burley. He uh, he gets the nod from me because he was a, a dominant pitcher, big wins uh, throughout his career. Just very steady, very consistent. Very sought after. He spent a lot of time with the, in the White Sox organization when he probably could have left and made big money elsewhere in a what could be considered a bigger market as well. Uh, can you imagine Mark Burley in a Yankees uniform or a Dodgers uniform uh, where you know, the light shine brighter than the White Sox and Blue Jays? So I think Mark Burley, for me, he was a very solid, very good dominant pitcher at times that could get you a lot of wins. So for me, he made my, uh, he's in my five. Okay. So number four on my list, and this may be the only one who 
isn't a, I guess, you know, a called out juicer, we could say, and that's Kurt Schilling. Uh, you know, Kurt Schilling did have some uh, off the field issues after he retired. I'm not going to touch on that at all. I'm strictly going to focus on his on the field numbers. And for a guy who had, you know, 216 career wins, he averaged 15 wins per season. He was a uh, three and a half ERA. Again, he averaged, you know, close to 220 or 210 strikeouts per season. He just, he had dominant stuff. And what I really remember about Kurt Schilling is in the playoffs, he was a warrior. And whether that be with the, the, the famous bleeding ankle with the Red Sox, or even in his early career pitching against our Toronto Blue Jays in 1993 in the World Series, he was a force. And he had some of the most dominant stuff in the game during the time. He may not have had as quite as high as win totals. I believe he got into some injury struggles later on in his career. But when he was on the mound, he routinely was one of the best pitchers in the league. So for that reason, Kurt Schilling, to me, deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. All right. Yeah, Schilling is an interesting one. He can be in a couple Hall of Fames and... Not one of one of them is not for good reasons. No. Um, my fourth pick is a returnee, and uh, he he made his debut in 1992. Also, he is actually the fifth player with Blue Jay ties. Made his debut in 1992 with the Jays. It was the only year he was with the Jays before he moved on to the Mets. Is Jeff Kent. Uh, very very good second baseman. I remember many years going, man, to have a guy at Jeff Kent playing for the Jays would be really good right now. And then that's when I learned he was a Blue Jay and became very, very disappointed. Uh, like many superstars throughout the league, who they got their start with the Blue Jays and moved on before they ever developed into something fantastic. But yeah, Jeff Kent was always just a, a solid, solid second baseman, gold glove caliber, dependable. He, he could hit. And... Uh, Again, working with the list we had, he made my my top five for Hall of Fame. <laughs> Again, the uh, difficult list that we've been provided. Yeah, uh, and it, this is, this isn't the whole list, but this is just if this is the highlights of what's available. I mean, I remember when Jeter went into the Hall of Fame, and there was one New York writer who only voted for Jeter. He had the opportunity to vote for nine other people, but he was only voting for Jeter. And advocating that people did that only to have Jeter be the only one that went into the hall. And I thought that was quite selfish because you look at there's a lot of guys on that list who were in their final year of eligibility that may have lost out because people made this stupid decision. Yeah. If there's ballots returned this year with one name on it, I get it. This is this is a tough year. Yeah. Last on my list and. I've got this guy on the list more for his uh, quirky personality than almost anything. And his numbers were there. And that's Manny Ramirez. On the field, he was uh, interesting to watch, needless to say. Uh, More so in his time in Boston. He was kind of, he was almost the clown on the field. Manny being Manny. Yeah, Manny being Manny. And his numbers are there and whether, you know, I don't think he was ever officially uh, caught by baseball as a, 
a known juicer, but I just don't see how he wasn't at, during that time frame. His numbers were there. He averaged you know, close to 40 home runs a season. Uh, he was in the 100 to 150 RBIs per season. And he just, he was one of the better hitters of our league, of our, of that era. And he, he definitely wasn't one of the better fielders. We'll, we'll definitely say that. <laughs> and yeah. uh, if he needed to go to the washroom in the middle of the game, he had no issue uh, opening up the wall or the door to the green monster. Well, he, that's he what I was just going to ask you. Is his plaque going to go in Cooperstown or inside the monster? I think there should be both. Uh, just yeah. <laughs> Manny Ramirez was a character, and I yeah. I like athletes with character. So for that, he's kind of number five on my list. Yeah. Uh, my number five is a guy that, man, if you wanted to watch exciting defense, this was the guy to watch, Omar Vizcal. He could make plays that no one else could could do. Yeah. And just like you could almost just give him the gold glove in spring training because it was going to be a stretch to give it to anyone else. And if anyone else did win it, it was probably because they just couldn't give it to Omar every year. This guy was beyond stellar in the field, very capable, a true leader on the field, I would say as well. Um, just a hell of a player for every team that he played on, even when he was older too. He he was very solid, very dependable. So for that reason, Omar Vizquel is my number five. Omar Vizquel reminded me of Ozzie Smith. He's kind of the uh, they were cookie cutters of each other. Just the defense was good. They weren't necessarily known for their contributions at the plate, but they weren't terrible by any stretch of the means. And like you said, I watching Omar Vizquel field grounders was like he was so silky smooth. It, I hated playing against that guy because <laughs> watch because he watching him he was a vacuum. If it was within oh, his yeah. area, you were out. So I. Omar Vizquel was actually number six on my list, but I kind of, I preferred the, uh, the bigger names, the bigger numbers, but Vizquel is definitely, definitely right up there. So good call on that one. I, I can't argue that. And again, as of going through the list and saying it, he had a short stint with the Jays as well. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, we can get a Blue Jay into the Hall of Fame. Well, let's do it. If only some of these guys played on our team during the heyday or their heydays. Yeah, the, the Jays would have been a lot better <laughs> over some of those years. Those are our Hall of Fame picks for the 2021 Major League Baseball. What do you guys think? Let us know on Twitter, at the BleacherCon1, at the BleacherCon2, or Facebook, Bleacher Connection with Ken and Trevor. Okay, so moving on to our next topic, and this one really hits home to me. Um, I am a Canadian Football League season ticket holder uh, for the Calgary Stampeders, have been. This would have been my 12th season, sitting up in Section Q in McMahon Stadium. And today, or actually this week, should have been the Grey Cup. And I can't lie, it, it tugs at my heartstrings that I'm not preparing myself to watch the Grey Cup right now. And... So I felt like this was a great time for Ken and I to kind of just shoot the breeze about the Canadian Football League. It's near and dear to both of our hearts, and it is a tough week for us. So 
Ken, I'm going to kind of let you lead off on this one. Yeah, this this would have been the 108th Grey Cup played, and it's only the second time in the CFL's history that the the, the Grey Cup has not been handed out. Uh, it, it's tough. Um, the Grey Cup is a tradition. Like you, I mean, it wasn't 12 years, but for a few years, I was a, a season ticket holder for the BC Lions as well, and you always look forward to it. I mean, from my standpoint... I prefer the CFL over the NFL. I will watch every game regardless of who's playing. I find it much more exciting. And what goes into a Grey Cup weekend is a lot. There's a lot of fun towards it. It's the atmosphere to be at, people getting together. You and I went to the Grey Cup uh, in, in Vancouver six years ago. And just the festivities around it, being at the game, I had no horse in that race. It, it was Hamilton versus Calgary. So for me, I didn't care who won, but just being at the game was something special. To be able to say, I've been to a great cup. I still got that ticket on display in in a case I have. So I agree, it's, it's a tough one. It hits home. I think that it's unfortunate that they didn't, they didn't get a season. Um, it's also a big revenue boost to the city that it's played in. I think this year was... This year was Regina, right? Yeah, it was supposed to be in Regina. So, for those that aren't familiar with the CFL, the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, I despise that team. Pretty sure, Trevor, you can attest to the same. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, you go to any game, whether you know it's a Lions versus Rough Riders, Stamps versus Rough Riders, insert the rest of the league versus the Rough Riders, you are in a stadium that is now almost 50-50, your fans and theirs. And they are just as loud, if not louder. So the Grey Cup being in Saskatchewan this weekend would have been huge for that city in tourism, in merchandise sales. Everything would have been boosted. So it's it's tough for the local economy. And I think it, it's just unfortunate that it's not happening. You had mentioned you'd said like it had to be, let's say, the BC Lions versus the Rough Riders. And I'm going to flat out tell you, it doesn't even have to be the Rough Riders playing. It could be the Toronto Argonauts against the Ottawa Red Blacks. And you have Rough Riders jerseys in the crowd in every stadium, at every game, uh, year round. It, yeah. Kudos to them. It's impressive. It's maddening. <laughs> I hate it. I'm not going to lie. If there's a franchise in professional sports, I hate more than the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. I don't know who it is. But yeah. kudos on them. They follow that team and they follow them across Canada. Absolutely. And it could be the first week of October on a Friday night in Toronto and 15 to 20,000 Saskatchewan Rough Rider fans make that trek from Saskatchewan to Toronto, and that is a four-hour plane ride, and they make that trek. So it's, it is impressive. So let's, let's ballpark the number. What percentage of that of Mosaic Stadium, Grey Cup weekend, this weekend, would have been green regardless of whether the Rough Riders were in that game or not? Oh, 85% at least? Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say 90. Like, they don't care. They would have been there in green. It, it would have... It would have been impressive to see. 
And I think uh, it's unfortunate that now with the 2021 schedule released and the return to play plan, is going to Hamilton, the 21, the 2021 Grey Cup. So I'm sure they'll find a way to swing back to Saskatchewan in the near future here. Uh, yeah, I just think there's what I find disappointing, you know, with no season is how many players are potentially at the end of their career and we're on a team that had a chance to go far into the playoffs and potentially go to the Grey Cup that now may end up retiring without that last chance at winning the Grey Cup. There's tons of them because the shelf life in the CFL for a lot of players isn't long, um, whether it be because they do eventually get a chance in the NFL or for salary restrictions reasons, they have to go to a younger player in the league who costs less money. Like for those that aren't as familiar with the Canadian football league, we're not talking huge salaries and we're not talking major salary caps. Like teams have a salary cap of around $3 million to field an entire team. Star quarterback signed contracts for hundreds of thousands of dollars, not millions. Yeah. Not hundreds of millions of dollars. And so there's a lot of these guys who get forced out early and you bring up a good point where how many of those guys lost an opportunity to compete for a great cup. And let's face it, the Grey Cup is as prestigious award as anything. It is, in Canada, it's an institution. And everybody knows what the Grey Cup is. And it is a countrywide celebration. And the people who have won it, Alex Singleton, for example, won it with the Calgary Stampeders in 2018. He's now playing for the Philadelphia Eagles. His background on his phone is still him lifting the Grey Cup in 2018, not a Philadelphia Eagles-related thing. Like, it it hits close to home for the players who win it as well. Yeah, it, and I think the part that is also, I know we got a return-to-play plan out this past week, but I'm going to ask you a question that I saw on, on Twitter, and it kind of, it it made me think and it made me worry. With this season gone and not happening, with the uncertainty of actually being able to pull off the 2021 season, if they don't, if they don't play in 2021, what is the survival rate of the CFL? I think that's fully hinged on whether the Canadian federal government steps in or not. Uh, I would have to believe that they would. The, The Canadian Football League is an institution in Canada, and I know there's lots of people who who choose the NFL over the CFL. I personally don't get it. Um, but if there's no federal support, there's a very high likelihood we may never see CFL football ever again. And trust me, that would be uh, a terrible day in sports history for me personally and just in general. It's For those of you who have never watched the Canadian Football League game, I highly recommend it. It is ridiculously exciting you don't get very many you know 12 9 football games in the cfl you get you know 35 28 the high scoring just loads of excitement so and for the most part the ninth place team can beat the first place team like it's not that far apart in talent wise at times that it is exciting to watch, and it would be a very sad day if that happened. I completely agree, Trevor. 
I worry, though, I agree, the federal support needs to be there, but I worry about when they asked this time around, they said no. Knowing full well, I mean, I don't think anyone would be like, oh, the CFL's fine if they don't play a season. I think the concern was already there when they were going to miss one year. Yep. So I worry that nothing changes with the federal government in Canada coming to the aid of the CFL. And again, it would probably be what is needed to happen. I just, I think it's unfortunately far-fetched. So I do, I am concerned that if they can't pull it off, because it is a gate-driven league for revenue, we, we've already discussed in the past that their merchandise is not well set up to make money. Uh, they got to find ways. And one way I think that they did try this year, you talk about the Grey Cup. The Grey Cup goes on display and people go to see it. They were offering season ticket holders first shot of all teams to get their name engraved on a new special stand that would go with the Grey Cup on display that you could then be part of history and have your name etched on the stand uh, wherever the Grey Cup went to be part of the CFL. And I think it was, while well, you probably got the email, was it like yep. 250 for season's ticket holders and then 300 for everyone else? Yeah, it was it was in that that ballpark of of a price point. It was um, it was expensive, but again, it was I get it. I understand why they would want to do that, try to generate a little bit of revenue and just kind of not even so much the revenue is to keep the Canadian Football League in the headlines because if you're not in the headlines and you're forgotten about, that's even worse. Yeah. So I thought it was important that they at least tried to stay in the headlines. And again, I get why they released a schedule this week because they're trying to create a little bit of buzz around what might happen and stay, I guess, fresh in people's minds. So Yeah, they had to do something. And I, I liked the idea. The the price point is a little steep during a pandemic for sure. Um, maybe one day if it's still available, look at doing it. But yeah. Now with the return to play plan, what was some of the things that caught your eye with that? Um to me, the uh, the slight change in the schedule, and I guess they're trying to create a few more regional rivalry games, which is always exciting. You know, don't get me wrong; I love going to McMahon Stadium and watching the Calgary Stampeders, you know, battle the Edmonton Football Club. Um, I'm not as big of a fan as when the Rough Riders are in town, but it's still exciting. And I guess so. The opportunity to potentially have one or two more of those games in my home city is exciting. You know, as opposed to maybe having to watch the Toronto Argonauts, which are, you know, quite as flashy and exciting. But I get that's what really stuck out to me on the schedule or on the return to play was kind of the 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 increase in in uh, rivalry games, let's call it, which is which is always exciting for the majority of fans. Yeah, it's tough to build a rivalry with the East when you only see them twice. So getting more games within your your division your conference is is better because you're going to see those teams and that that hate and the wanting to beat them is just going to grow and grow um so i think that's good the one comment that was made by the commissioner randy ambrosi was he said they want to come back in 2021 with fans now we are six almost seven months away from that time i still think that is a very very lofty goal yes. right now 
I think making that comment, and, and I didn't get a chance to go back and listen or see the whole statement, but it's a very risky thing to throw out there right now and then potentially have to walk back in four or five months. Things aren't getting any better in any of the provinces in Canada and more and more restrictions are coming down. So how, as that's being announced, you can say you want to do it with fans. We're seeing it now. Leagues with fans are not having perfect goes of it with keeping players and staff COVID free. Yeah. I don't know if it's a pipe dream. I guess we'll see as the vaccination comes out and how distribution works and all that fun and how the numbers look. We'll see. It's, in my opinion, way too early to be making a statement either way about whether you will or won't. I know there has been discussion about a CFL bubble season and how that would work because they need to do something. They can't just not play, in my opinion. But, yeah, we shall see potentially how that works. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit here on you, Ken, as we continue some of our CFL talk. And I want to ask you, what is your greatest moment in CFL history? Well, I think <clears throat> keeping it in Grey Cup themed, I think, I mean, I was 13 at the time, but 1994 Grey Cup in BC, it was actually the first fo- professional football championship ever played between a Canadian and American team where, you know, if you, if you think hearing the Washington football team and the Edmonton football team is a new thing, the 1994 Grey Cup was played between the BC Lions and the Baltimore football team because the, the name Stallions was taken away from them. Down, the game was won by the Lions. And I remember watching at home and just the excitement then and, and how the city erupted after was Louis Pisaglia. BC Lion great kicker hitting a last second field goal to win the game. And I think it was just, it was quite the sight to see on TV. I mean, it was in BC place, which holds 60,000 plus people and it was packed and it just erupted. And I think going back from a TV standpoint, that was uh, probably one of the best moments to watch in person I think just being at the Great Cup was something to be, you know, high on that list because it's you can't do it every year. You know, I ended up traveling from Edmonton to Calgary, and then you and I we went out to Vancouver. So it was a trek in, to in get a there. Blizzard. <laughs> in a blizzard, yeah. I mean, I spent a good portion of that week ahead that one. I don't think I'm gonna go. Nah, it's not that bad. No, it's it's that bad. I don't think I'm gonna go. And then it was the Friday morning. I'm like, eh, it's not snowing today. Um, you know. Smartest decision? Probably not. <laughs> but no, no. It, it, that, that whole weekend was uh, quite the experience, and it was fun to, to be in that atmosphere, watch the halftime show, uh, watch the trophy being handed out. And, and again, but realizing all of that is meant for the TV audience, not the people that paid to be there. I think there's some interesting things to see within that as well. Yeah, like the Imagine Dragons playing the halftime show and – only a third of the stadium could actually <laughs> see the stage. <laughs> we, we were lucky because, I mean, we were up near the top of the stadium, but right in the middle of the uprights. So we got to see it from the side, but anyone to our left uh, didn't see anything. Did they were watching it on the big screen in the, in the stadium. So I think that was one of uh, my best ones. Uh, for those that may not know, we, Ken and I joked about making the drive from Calgary to Vancouver 
Well, that's not a short drive. The, the drive from Calgary to Vancouver is between 10 and 11 hours at the best of times through the Rocky Mountains, through mount, numerous mountain passes, uh, single lane highway for a large portion of it, um, and, and blizzard conditions. So I just got to put that disclaimer out there of um, what should have been maybe a 10-hour drive got closer to probably the 12 to 13-hour mark yeah. on, uh, with how fast we were able to drive. But again, our love for the league more or less dictated. I remember Ken would text me. He's like, I don't think I'm coming. I don't think I'm coming. And I'm like, we have to go, Ken. We have to go. I was like, I don't know, man. This just doesn't seem right. But <laughs> in the end, our love for the league you know, won out, and rightfully so. Yeah, we, smarter we, decisions did not win that day. Yeah. We're here today to discuss that wonderful story. So it all worked yeah. out well. <laughs> um, to me, my greatest moment in CFL history comes from a Grey Cup back in 2009 and even though it was in my home city I didn't get a chance to attend this game but I definitely watched it on TV why was this so great well it involved one of my greatest rivals and a game against the Montreal Alouettes and to give you a little bit of history on the lead up to why what is so great about it is imagine your team was about to win a championship but you needed the opposing team to miss a field goal. And lining up from about 40 yards out, not an easy chip shot in, in CFL football. And imagine the ball snapped, the kick is up, and he misses, and your team wins the championship. And everybody's running onto the field and going wild, and everybody's so excited. And then all of a sudden, there's a flag on the play. And this is what goes down in history. The Saskatchewan Rough Riders, playing the Montreal Alouettes, were called for too many men on the field. And in the CFL, I believe this is a 10-yard penalty, which puts the Montreal Alouettes 10 yards closer. And they get an opportunity for a re-kick. And with that re-kick, the kick is up, and it is good! And all of a sudden... The Montreal Alouettes have won the Grey Cup and not the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. And for those that know me, I adamantly dislike the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. And to see the fans and the players go from this, this moment of celebration to this moment of agony was just, it was tremendous. And it, it goes down in the history of the CFL as one of the most bonehead plays. And it's still, to this day, whenever any Riders game goes on and there's any penalties against them, especially a too many men on the field, it is, it, the, the crowd goes wild. It doesn't matter what city you're in. So for that reason, Ken, that's got to be one of my greatest moments in CFL history. Well, if I remember correctly, Hamilton almost had that same moment in the Grey Cup game we were at when I think it was Banks took a kick back, yet there was a uh, penalty on the field at the far side that negated the touchdown on the return. So I remember it, that as you you turn to me and you go, are you having fun watching your team lose the Grey Cup right now? And I had already seen the flag on the field, but it was... Uh, I could almost feel the anguish in the Riders fans' hearts because I almost lived it myself. 
Yeah, it was it was a close one there. We'd love to hear what your guys' greatest memories in the CFL is, what your thoughts are on the uh, what Grey Cup weekend means to you, and the CFL's return to play plan. Let us know on Twitter at the BleacherCon1 and at the BleacherCon2, and let us know on our uh, Facebook page, the Bleacher Connection with Ken and Trevor. I want to thank everyone for listening in on the Unhinged Sports Network and all podcast platforms. And uh, we'll talk to you again in a week. Thanks, everyone. Awesome. Thanks, everyone.